Preface and Chapter 1 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seitel. The Cruise of the Falcon by Edward Frederick Knight. Preface. In this volume, I have told the story of the voyage extending over a period of twenty months of my yawl, the Falcon, 18 tons register, 30 tons RTM, in South American and West Indian waters. We left Southampton on the 20th of August, 1880, the crew being composed of four amateurs, three of whom were barristers and a cabin boy. The narrative includes the description of a five-months cruise in the yacht up the rivers Parana and Paraguay, and of a ride across the Pampas to Tucumán. The number of miles traveled over by land and sea was roughly 22,000. The Author Chapter 1. The Results of a Fish Dinner at Greenwich It was one of those beautiful, lazy July days that even London is occasionally blessed with and which tend to inspire busy man with profound misgivings as to the truth of that trite lesson that unremitting toil is his destiny and sole object here below. My friend, Arthur Jardine, and myself, urged by the glory of the weather, concluded that a holiday would be to our moral, physical, and mental advantage, and thereupon, acting up to our laudable determination, walked away from the narrow city streets and took boat at the temple stairs for the ancient port of Greenwich. A favorite trip of both of us, this, but one that never wearied and seemed ever new. To come out of the confined city and to steam through a fresh breeze down the grand old river, among the big ocean-going ships, by the stately storehouses and quaint waterside wharves and slips, has a peculiar fascination of its own, with its manifold suggestions of enterprise in many a strange land and sea. We enjoyed the orthodox fish dinner, had another stroll through the models of antique ships of war and relics of many victories in the hospital, and then lingered, lazily smoking, on the sea platform of the palace as we waited for the boat to take us back to the unquiet town. It was indeed a lovely evening, a tam-side evening as Turner loved to paint, with just that suspicion of haze in the golden atmosphere to tone down all the hardness of outline and crudity of color and glorify all. We looked over the waters, saw the barges dropping down with the tide, their tan sails gleaming like red gold in the western light. A big vessel passed us, an Australian clipper crowded with emigrants who raised a farewell cheer as the last shoreboats left her side. A smart yawl yacht of some sixty tons lay at anchor close in front of us. We looked on all of this, silent for a time, but our thoughts were very similar. The surroundings influenced us in like manner. In all the restless air moved the spirit of travel and adventure. Each sound of chain rattling through hawsepipe, each smell of tar and odorous foreign wood, each sight was full of reminiscence of far lands, warm seas, and islands of spice. All seemed to say, go out on the free seas. We were both vagabonds, I fear, in our disposition, with nomadic blood in our veins, and our previous wanderings had not been few, 
So far this summer, various causes had kept me in London, so I was more than usually thirsting after a change from city life, and lo, already there was an autumnal beauty in the sky. It would soon be too late, the summer wasted. All these months of glorious sunshine and breeze, winter was near. The weariness of the city, the sigh of the autumn wind, the surroundings of travel, all combined to wake a restlessness and a regret in me. So, too, was it with my friend, for when one of us awoke from the reverie and spoke, the conversation was on that of which our hearts were full. We admired the beautiful yacht riding at anchor. How well, one said, to set to work now and fit out with all stores a vessel like that, and with a few good friends sail right away from the coming northern winter, right away for a year or two into summer seas. In five minutes, though before leaving London the faintest shadow of such a plan had not fallen on our minds, we decided to follow this impulse, and at the very idea of what we were about to do, all our discontent vanished like a smoke, and a most joyous enthusiasm succeeded it. As is the custom under such circumstances, we retired to the ship, with solemn ceremony uncorked a bottle and poured out a libation to propitiate the sea-god and Aeolus of the winds. Then we returned to London, light-hearted and full of our plan to commence preliminary work on that very evening. Thus it was that the cruise of the Falcon came about. My friend Jerdine, I must tell you, has been a sailor, an ex-officer of the Royal Mail and P&O companies. I myself am an amateur mariner, having had many years' experience of fore and afters. As skipper, cook, steward, mate, and crew of my little yawl, the ripple of Southampton, in which I used to make periodical descents on the coast of France, I had gained a fair knowledge of practical seamanship. Now what we proposed to do was to find two or three friends to join us in a lengthened cruise in a small yacht, say of twenty tons burden. The idea was that we should sail her ourselves and dispense altogether with a professional crew, an advantage in a small vessel. On our return to town, we exposed ourselves to some chaff when we revealed our grand scheme. Those who did not doubt our sincerity were dubious of our sanity, and unhesitatingly expressed their opinion that both the boat and the crew would be found at about the Greek Kalends. But before many days had passed, we found the vessel, and very lucky we were in her. Had we searched all around the British Isles, we could have discovered nothing so perfectly adapted to our purpose. I had written to Mr. Pickett of Stockham and Pickett, Southampton, who had built the ripple for me, asking him if he knew of any vessel that would suit us. He wrote back and told me that there was the very thing for us laid up for sale in his yard alongside the ripple. So Jardine and myself took the next train to Southampton to inspect her. We found the Falcon to be a yawl of 18 tons register, 30 tons yacht measurement, a boat of exceptionally strong construction, for she had been built in Penzance for a fishing lugger, and the Penzance luggers have the reputation of being the strongest and best sea boats of their size. She had a square stern, which did not perhaps improve her beauty, but gave her a character of her own, and pole masts. Her length was 42 feet, her beam 13, and her draught about seven and a half. She was a most solid vessel, looking as if she meant business, perfectly sound and possessing a fair inventory, 
so it was not long before I had arranged matters with her owners and became the proud possessor of the gallant little craft that was to be my home for nearly two years. Jerdine and myself left London and at once commenced to fit her out, for we were anxious to sail away into calm seas before the autumnal equinox was on us with its gales. There was plenty to do. We had her coppered well above the water line, fitted her with water tanks and biscuit lockers, reduced her canvas, and ordered spare and storm sails. Besides her main, jib-headed mizzen, fore-staysail, and jib, she carried a sliding Gunter gaff topsail and a spinnaker. We procured all the necessary charts, directories, nautical instruments, stored away some nine months' provisions, decorated the main cabin walls with arms for defense and sport, martini-henry rifles, cutlasses and revolvers, and purchased a small brass swivel gun with grape and canister. No one who has not undertaken to fit out even so small a vessel for a cruise of years over tens of thousands of miles of ocean can conceive how much there is to think of and provide for. The report of our proceedings spread in Southampton. Longshore loafers, yachting men, and others took an interest in the curious expedition of an amateur crew in so small a craft, and there was generally a small crowd watching the preparations that made Pickett's yard noisy with sound of hammering, sawing, and caulking. Jordan and myself were employed for three days in unpacking and storing away bales of tin meats and other stores. Hearing that we did not intend to take professionals with us, many affected to disbelieve in us, jeered at our plans, and prophesied we should be weary of the trip before we got out of the chops of the channel, put into Cherbourg, stay there a week or so, and then return. By some ill-omened soothsayers, we were advised to paint the vessel's name conspicuously on her keel, so that she would be easily recognized when found floating upside down on some sea or other. West Quay, however, believed in us, and Pickett was enthusiastic on the subject and sanguine as to our success. But he and others, too, would often inquire, Here are you and Mr. Jourdain, but where's the rest of the crew? We have not seen them yet. With great difficulty, we found two gentlemen to join us, Mr. Andrews and Mr. Arnod, but unfortunately, neither of these had the slightest idea of sailing a boat. They knew nothing whatever of nautical matters. At last, they turned up in Southampton, and Pickett's Yard came out to study them. The yacht sailors looked on with interest as one of these bold, would-be circumnavigators in top hat and kid gloves, with gingerly steps carefully ascended the ladder which lay against the falcon's side, reached the deck, and looking around, remarked with quite a nautical air, as he hitched up his trousers, What a lot of strings there are about this boat. I shall never know the use of them all. West Quay likewise studied bold circumnavigator number two, smiled, and shrugged its shoulders. This was certainly not a promising crew to take across the Atlantic, and no one knew this better than Jerdine and myself. Thus, we were bound to add another member to our crew, who was of much more use, though small in volume. This was a small boy, a very small boy of about fifteen, homeless and characterless, who was loafing about West Quay in search of odd jobs, a half-starved, melancholy, silent little wretch, 
who had been the recipient of more kicks than halfpence during his short existence. On questioning him, we found he had been two years on board a North Sea fishing boat, no gentle school. When we offered him a berth on the Falcon, he gladly accepted it. He never smiled then, that boy. He does now. When we first engaged him, Jerdine catechized him thus. What is your name? Arthur. Can you steer by compass? Yes. Can you make a bowling knot on this piece of string? He satisfactorily accomplished this feat. Do you ever get drunk? Ain't often got the chance, sir. Do you ever smile? Yes, sir. This response came out doubtfully, and forthwith he tried to screw something like a smile out of his despondent features. It was a ghastly failure. His muscles were unaccustomed to the necessary movements and worked rustily and with effort. Perhaps it was well for him that he could not smile during the early stages of our voyage, for there were things to smile at, deeds of eccentric seamanship on the part of some of the crew, at the which, were he to have smiled, a box on the ears might have brought him back to his normal melancholy. Others now volunteered to join the Falcon. Stewards and French cooks, reading of a proposed lengthy cruise in the papers, came for engagements, beheld the vessel and her crew, shook their heads and vanished. As far as the provisions were concerned, the Falcon was well supplied. We had stores sufficient for five men for nine months, consisting, among other things, of 400 pounds of biscuits and nearly a thousand tins of preserved meats, vegetables, and etc. A supply of lime juice was, of course, not forgotten, and an ample cask of rum was securely screwed down in the main cabin. We carried about 250 gallons of water, which we reckoned would last us three months with proper precautions. On our long passages, as across the Atlantic, all washing with fresh water was, of course, forbidden. We did not omit to take with us some tin plum puddings wherewith to keep up in orthodox form the Christian days which we should spend on the Falcon. We shipped yet another hand before we sailed. Mrs. Pickett presented us with a little kitten to take with us. Poor little thing, it purred merrily and romped about when it first came on board, little knowing what was before it. Before starting, the discipline of the ship had to be arranged, and the duties of each apportioned out. Jardine was officer of the port, I of the starboard watch. Andrews was on Jardine's watch, Arnaud on mine. The boy Arthur was on no watch, as he had a good deal of lamp cleaning, etc. in the day. He used to turn in for the night, only steering now and then in the daytime, especially at mealtimes in fine weather, when he was left in charge, while we four sat down to table together. We used to keep four-hour watches, watch and watch, in the usual way with dog watches from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. The plan of our cruise was as follows to sail by easy stages to Buenos Aires and then navigate the great tributaries of the River Plate, the Parana, and the Paraguay as high as we could in the yacht. We had heard much of the glories of these huge streams and of the abundant sport to be found on their wild banks. No yacht had ever ascended the Paraguay before, and we anticipated a good deal of novelty and excitement in those fair regions, should we, as we little doubted, affect our purpose. End of chapter 1